follow along. <coughs> it says, John writing, he says, I saw still another, and that word another is significant to this conversation that we're going to be having today, this study today. So in your Bible, underline or highlight if you do that word another. I, still, I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven clothed with a cloud. And a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had a little book open in his hand. And he set it on his right foot, or and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Now, verse 3, it says, And he cried out with a loud voice, and as, as when a lion roars, and when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now, when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. Verse 5, the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to the heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there shall that there should be a be delay no longer, and that reference to God at this point as the Creator, and and in verse six, and the 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 oath or that the angel swore by is intentional, uh, intentionally written here and 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 um, described in that way at this time um, because of exactly what's going on here. So keep verse six in mind when we come back to these these verses. And, and, and um, we'll get a little bit better explanation of why God is referred to in such great detail. Not only is the one who lives forever and ever, but the one who created all things uh, and him being the creator. So in verse 7, it goes on. It says, but in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished. And he declared to his servants, he declared to his servants, the prophets. Then verse 8, the a voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, go, take the little book, which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. And so I went to the angel and, and said to him, give me the little book. And he said to me, take it and eat it. It'll make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand, ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. So don't eat books, right? A little strange. We'll talk about that. But lastly, in verse 11, it says, And he said to me, You must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. And, and, and verse 11 ties directly to that, that taking in of this, this um, little book that John was instructed to eat. So turn back to verse 1 of chapter 10. I want to point out a couple of things, not only for context, but... Uh, the book of Revelation, as we're studying it, it's, it's one thing to sit down and read a, a book of the Bible from the very beginning to the end, and then to, to study it chapter by chapter like we're doing here. And, and as we're taking these bite-sized pieces, sometimes we can lose, lose sight of, of the, the forest, if you, if you will. If we're cutting down one tree at a time, we sometimes forget that there's a bigger picture. And so I, I spent a little time going into uh, this, uh, giving some context and speaking some things so that we can keep the bigger picture as we're going through um, these chapters. And, and so before I go into this chapter, I want to point out that this portion of the book of Revelation, 
uh, that we're in now began in chapter 6, okay? It began in chapter 6, and this portion continues on through chapter 18. And, and these chapters, they account and describe for us the pouring out of God's wrath during these seven years of tribulation. And these chapters can really be divided into three sections. And that's what I want to illustrate for you this morning. The first section is found back in chapters 6 and 7. It's, 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 it's what began this, this portion of Scripture, and there's a section there that is distinct from the rest. And in chapter 6 and 7, it tells us about the opening of the seven seals, if you remember that, the seven seals that were on the scroll that had been sealed shut, that only the Lamb of God is worthy to open. And with the opening of these seven seals, we are told about the judgments that come upon the earth, one with each seal that, that is opened. So judgments upon the earth and also judgments upon those who dwell on the earth at this time. And remember, this scroll was first made known to us back in chapter 5. John was in the throne room of God, and we talked about how that appears to be the, the forfeited, forfeited title deed to the earth, which Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, was able and worthy to redeem what man lost through his death and sacrifice on the cross, through his blood. And chapter 5 really speaks about that, the blood of the Lamb, right? And the second section of Scripture that we are now really in, so we're in this portion that deals about the, the wrath of God and describes and accounts it, and now we're in the second section, and there's 13 chapters that are devoted to the second section, okay? And it's what we're reading about now. It began in chapter 8. And it goes on to chapter 14. And this second section accounts the sounding of the seven trumpets. So we had the seven seals. Now we have in seven, the seven trumpets. And specifically, with the sounding of each trumpet, a judgment that comes to pass <clears throat> that we're now reading about. And, the, and, and moving forward, just so you can see the big picture here, the third and final section is in the, the remaining three. 15, chapters 15 through chapter 18. And if you've read ahead, you know what's there already. If you hadn't, you can go and look. But I'll tell you, it's where the seven bulls are, uh, the judgments of the, se the seven bull judgments are, are accounted for. Seven bull judgments that will be poured out in chapters 15 through 18 as a final release of God's wrath upon the earth. And I, I wanted to point this out before we continue on, um, because with each of these sections, now this is how it relates directly to where we're at today. Because with each of these sections, there's a pause. So there's an outpouring of wrath, outpouring of wrath, outpouring of wrath, and accounting, and accounting, and accounting, and then there's a pause. A pause that follows specifically every time the sixth event that we read about, whether it's with the opening of the sixth seal, or the sounding of the sixth trumpet, or the outpouring of the sixth bowl that is accounted for us before the seventh is actually executed, there's a pause. And that's where we're at now. There's a pause. And in every instance, we see that this pause, this is the really cool thing about it, is, is that in every instance, we see that with this pause, that it is a time where God tells about and identifies a special work. A work that will take place even in the midst of these end-time judgments. A time, I'll say, of grace. A time of God's mercy where God gives the opportunity for who, those who are dwelling upon the earth at this time still to repent and to put their faith in Jesus and to receive the promise and hope of eternal life even in the midst of this time. Now think about it. Even in the midst of this time when God is evicting those who openly hate him. 
And back in the first section in chapter 6 through 7 where we read about the seven seals, the pause between the sixth and the seventh seal, the opening of the seals and the, and the judgments that came with them, God, we're told, we're told in that pause back then of how God will set apart for himself 144,000 witnesses. Remember, Jewish male virgins who will go throughout the earth and these witnesses will carry God's message of salvation, of grace through faith in Jesus to the entire world during the seven-year period of time. And we know that by this, many will be saved, even though their decision will bring forth much persecution. And that's the voices that we heard of the saints that were under, the tribulation saints that are under the altar in heaven crying out, how long, O Lord, how long will you wait before you avenge us. And those are the saints that, that will die during the tribulation period, those who, who respond to the witnesses' message of salvation. Likewise, in the second section here in chapter 10 that we're now reading of, after the sixth trumpet has been sounded and before the seventh trumpet is sounded, we see this other pause, another pause. And with this pause, we're told about this angelic witness who will come to the earth, and what he's doing here is he's, 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 he's laying a physical claim to the earth as God's possession. By this chapter and what we read here, God is saying, this is mine. This is mine. And that goes back to, to verse 6 where the angel declares, he makes this oath and declares this oath by swearing upon him who lives forever and ever, right? He who is, who's created the heavens and the earth. And, God, and that, it's just a reminder, God made it all. It's his. He owns it. Well, he's coming to make good on his promises, and in doing so, he's laying claim, physical claim, to the earth and all that it is in it. In addition to this, we see, we will read in, in, in chapter 11 that during this pause, additional witnesses are coming. You can look ahead to chapter 11. It's still part of the pause, chapters 10, 11. There's going to be these two witnesses, and these are human witnesses, and, and man, they have some unique power during this time. It's, it's, I don't want to get into it too much, but people are going to try to kill him, and they, they can't be killed. Um, uh, there's speculation on, on who they are. I don't want to get too far ahead. We'll talk about that next week. You're going to, you guys want to come back and, and get chapter 11 and, and read more about these two witnesses. But they'll be sent down from heaven to prophesy for God and to testify to him. And, 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 and we know that today with modern technology, a lot of what we read here in chapter 11 is possible. It says the whole world is going to be watching. Well, that wasn't possible until, you know, just a few decades ago. You know, with the invention of, of modern media and such, and that the whole world will now be watching these two witnesses, and they'll be in Jerusalem there at the temple, is what we're told. Anyway, uh, we won't, I won't say more about that. But these two witnesses will prophesy and testify of God, and in regards to the timeline of events, okay, so we know that all these things are happening according to God's plan, according to God's purposes. There's a specific timeline to this. And in regards to the timeline of these events that are coming to pass during these last seven years, chapters 10 through 14 now are specifically telling us about events that will occur during the middle of the seven years of tribulation, okay? At the midway point. And, and, and these chapters, uh, in these chapters, in, in chapters 10 through 14, the mention of this three and a half year mark of time then the events that are spoken, uh, the events that will occur or take place at this time is spoken of five different times in these chapters. I'm going to give you the references. I'm not going to read them. The first is here in chapter 11. We see the halfway mark being mentioned in chapter, in chapter 11, verses 2 
in, in chapter 3. You can look ahead there into chapter 11. Then again in chapter 12, verse 6. Then again in chapter 12, verse 14. And then lastly, it'll be mentioned for the fifth time in chapter 13, verse 5. Letting us know these events are happening at a specific preordained time that God has set forth. And according to Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, in the Old Testament, where it also has prophecies regarding these end times events that we're now reading and studying about, this three and a half year mark is ushered in, we're told, by the Antichrist. The Antichrist reveals himself to be not who he presented himself to be in the beginning. Remember, it says that he'll rise up into power, he'll be a peacemaker, pompous words, he'll establish a seven-year peace treaty with Israel and all kinds of other nations. But here, the Antichrist is revealed to be more than, than what he showed himself to be. He is the beast. He's referred to as the beast. And in doing so, he's going to break this covenant, the seven-year peace treaty that he's made specifically with Israel, and he's going to reveal himself in, 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 a, in a satanic rage. Okay? Remember, in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, it says this. It says, Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, meaning seven years. But in the middle of those seven years, it says in Daniel chapter 27, he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on the wings of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out by the desolate. Now listen, but before the seventh trumpet is sounded, which will introduce to us then the next section with the seven bowls of wrath being poured out, that, that before that happens, this last three and a half years of tribulation, in this last three and years, half years of tribulation, John says again in verse 10, or chapter 10, verse 1, he says, I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And in these verses that I just reread, we're given this detailed description of this angel, a mighty angel who will come down from heaven and he uniquely and intentionally positions himself upon the earth, right? And there will be, there's this debate, I'm just gonna speak to it right now, there's this debate out there within Christianity as to the identity of this quote-unquote mighty angel. And the two differing thoughts are that this angel could be a pre-second coming visit of Jesus. And that might sound a little confusing, but we know that the return of Jesus is returned to as his second coming. At the end of the seven years of tribulation, it says he'll come in glory with his saints to set up his throne upon the earth. We know that's the, the, the end of the seven years. But some people think, well, this is maybe like a, a pre-second coming visit of Jesus. Others say that this mighty angel is actually an archangel. The Bible speaks about different classes of angels, and there's an archangel as one of the classes of angels. And some people say this is an archangel who personifies God and points us to Jesus. Now, before I go on to expound on these things, I want to say that I, I, I hear this. I don't think it really makes a difference if a person believes this is Jesus or an actual angel. So I don't really understand the the, the deal for the, the argument that, that a lot of people seem to get in over it. Here's the reason why. Because it doesn't change the mission of the one who is sent. 
Whether you believe it's Jesus or you believe it an angel, the mission is still the same. And the reason for why he is sent and what he does when he gets here are what's most important for us to understand. And so that's what I want to draw your attention to. So with this being said, the mission of this mighty angel who comes with this book in his hand, we see that his mission is twofold. Okay? And the first part of his mission is to stake claim to the whole earth. He, takes, he stakes claim to the whole earth and... <coughs> excuse me. He stakes claim to the whole earth prior to these last three and a half years of the tribulation. And this is important because the Antichrist is going to rise up and he's going to be a, a, a world leader at this point and he himself is laying claim to it and saying it's mine. And God through the act of this mighty angel is saying, no, it's not. You may think it's yours, but it's not yours. And, 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 and in staking a claim to the whole earth, we'll, we'll see that the inhabitants of the earth, the God-haters, they're ultimately going to be evicted along with the dragon or Satan whom they worship. And he, we know, will be bound and cast into the bottomless pit is what we'll see as we read on. So in a very literal sense, God is saying that the earth is mine and those who do not love me are no longer welcome here. Do you get that? That's the message. That's the first part of the mission. The second part of this mighty angel's mission is to make this open declaration by the way of swearing an oath. An open declaration by swearing an oath, which we see in verse 6, and then saying in verse 7 that all of the remaining prophecies of God that have yet not come to pass by this time will be completed through the sounding of the seventh trumpet. As a matter of fact, the, the angel in those verses even says that there should no longer, there should, there should be a delay no longer. And it was, it's kind of this, they're coming, get prepared, because God's not delaying any longer. And so as we look at this mighty angel, we see that he is first described to us as descending from heaven to earth, and um, he's clothed with a cloud. So the word here that is used for cloud is the Hebrew word nephile. And it's the same word that is used in, back in chapter 1 of the book of Revelation, in verse 7. When John greeted the seven churches and he spoke of Jesus returning with the clouds. In that verse, it's the same Hebrew word nephile. It's, it's actually a Greek word in what we would read it, but it's translated from the Hebrew word nephile, just to to be exact on that, so I'm not confusing anybody. Furthermore, this word is used in the Old Testament. This word nephile is used in the Old Testament where we are told about the nation of Israel. And if you remember, the nation of Israel, they were going through the wilderness, and as they were being led by the wilderness, there was a cloud by day, right, and a pillar of fire by night. That cloud by day that we read about is that same word, nephile. And this isn't exactly in Exodus Chapter 13, I want to read that to you in verses 21 and 22. It says, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. So as to go by day and night. He did not take the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. The Nephilim. 
And in light of this, we can see how this cloud that we're reading about now, understand it's more than just like water vapor, like what we have with our clouds. This is a, a unique cloud. It's a specific thing. And, and really what it is is a direct reference to the kind of glory of God, the presence of God revealed. That's what the pillar of fire was and the, and the, and the cloud by day. And, and, and so we have the presence of God coming with this angel. And this is what this angel, we're told, is literally clothed with. Clothed with. And so the next thing we're told about him is, is that he has this rainbow on his head. Now, I don't know what that exactly looks like, if it's like a halo or a crown or, or what, but back in chapter 4, what we read about is that the rainbow also is in the heavenly realm. As a matter of fact, we're told back in four, chapter 4, when we're looking at the, the uh, throne room of God, we see that the, the, the rainbow there surrounds the throne room of God, surrounds the throne of God. It's mentioned in Scripture. And um, in every instance, when we look at to scripture and you you can do a word search for that word rainbow every time this mentioned it's always connected to mercy it's symbolic of mercy and here's the reason why is because it points us back to the very first rainbow that was ever given and 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 ultimately to the promise that god gave noah at that time when the rainbow was in the sky after the time of the flood and this is accounted for you in Genesis chapter 9, verses 12 through 17. You can go and read that on your own if you would like. But from this passage, we see that the rainbow ultimately is a promise, right? It's a promise that God will never destroy the earth with a flood again. So wherever a rainbow is found, we see how it's a sign that speaks back to this covenantal promise that God has made. Furthermore, it reminds God, here's the deal, it reminds God of the promise he has made with mankind. And this is not to say that God needs any reminders, but it's obvious that God has chosen to have this sign of the rainbow before him at all times. And this is why it's, it's seen there surrounding his throne. And also a reason for why there are literally, go do, go do a, a little bit of research on the internet about this. This is a cool fact. When we look at a rainbow in the sky and we see that, right, we go, we, they're pretty, they're beautiful. And if we're believers, we know the, the connection that we have to God's promises and, and it's a demonstration of God's mercy. But did you know that there's literally thousands and thousands of rainbows upon the earth at any given time? Ours isn't the only one. They're everywhere. And so if you're God looking down from heaven, he's seeing these rainbows everywhere. And people are seeing them everywhere. Literally thousands of rainbows upon the earth at any given time. But, we, but, but because of this, I think we can take comfort in the fact, I think what we're telling being shown here is that our God is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. And that his word is his bond to us. If God has said it, he will do it. In addition to being clothed with the glory of God and wearing this symbolic reminder of God's mercy and God's grace upon his head, we're also told about his face, right? His face is shining like the brightness of his sun, and his feet, they're like pillars of fire. And the fact of the matter is, is these things, when you look it up, they do line up with the description given to us back in Revelation chapter 1 where, where, Jesus, where John describes the glorified and resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ, and what he looks like. In light of all this, it's easy to see why some might think that this is Jesus. However, this is, that's all I really want to spend on it, I want to, I, I, but I, I want to connect uh, the dot here as we move forward. I think there's reasons for why this mighty angel is probably not Jesus, and it's, it's twofold. And, and this is why I had you underline 
the, the word to begin with. It's because of the word another, where John says in verse 1, I saw another mighty angel. And, the, and our English word for another translates from one of two Greek words. There's the word alos, which means another of the same kind, and there's the other Greek word heteros. And it means, heteros means another of a different kind. And in the Greek word that is used here, it's the word alos, meaning another of the same kind. In light of this, it appears that John is telling, telling us of this another of the same kind, and that he's referring back to what he's already seen, meaning other strong and mighty angels that he's already reported seeing back in the throne room of God, back in chapter 5, verse 2. Remember, this is when the angel who proclaimed with a loud voice, he asked this question, who is worthy to open the scroll and loosen its seals? Now, the second reason for why this appears to not be Jesus is because of this book that is seen in the hand of the angel that is spoken of in verse 2. And, and even though some people believe the little book is, is, is the scroll that's talked about in, back in chapter 5 that Jesus came forward to take hold of, it's pretty evident by what we read here that this book is something different. Two different words, again, in the, in the Greek language. The, the word here is bibliriaidon, which is not the same Greek word that is used for the scroll back in chapter 5. Now, all of this, I, I point that out to get to this point of application for us. In light of this, I need to point out that it appears that this very unique and special angel of God is the only angel that's ever mentioned in the Bible by name. Out of all the angels spoken of, there's only one that's ever mentioned by name. Anybody know who? Huh? Michael. Well, there's Gabriel in regards. I take that back. Two angels that are only mentioned by name. Gabriel with Mary, and then we have Michael. I'm referring to the Old Testament. Let me clarify that. And, and the name of Michael, it means this, one who is like God. One who is like God. In light of this, we can understand that his unique appearance is, is the way that it is because as we're given this description, it's apparent that, that God has created Michael, the archangel, to visibly reflect many of his own attributes. Now think about that in relationship to us in the salvation that we've received. The Bible tells us that, that we've become new creations in Christ Jesus, that we're called to follow his example, that God has placed his spirit inside of us, and we too reflect through that nature that God has given us, God to other people. And, and so who, who and what do people see when they look into your lives? Do we glorify God by the things that we do and the things that we speak? Because we have that ability to do so with God's Spirit dwelling inside us. Is the fruit of the Spirit being manifested in our lives? Are the gifts of the Spirit being exercised through our lives? See, this angel comes to be, a, to be God's um, representative as he lays claim to the earth, but in doing so, the people of the earth look upon God, who he swears by an oath by, and they should be amazed and astonished and and. and and in awe of who his God is when they see this angel, Michael, perhaps one who is like God. The same should be true in our life. I was speaking to a guy the other day, and he uh, uh, was telling me that there's this guy that goes to another church that he has a relationship with. And every time he, he, he has conversation with this guy, 
he's overwhelmed in his spirit and, and, and even sometimes moved by, to tears just by being together with this guy because this guy is such an a, a awesome example, an awesome reflection of who God is, of who Christ is, that when, when he sees and spends time with this man, that he sees and feels like he's spending time with Jesus. Can that be said to be true of us? It should be. It should be true of us. First, men starting at home with your wives. Are you an example of Jesus by the way you live and what you do to your wives, to your children, to your grandchildren, to your neighbors, to this world right now who is lost and confused and, and hopeless in so many ways as everything's been turned upside down? Now's the time to shine bright before the Lord, before, for the Lord, before this world. Now, as we look at Daniel, or excuse me, the, this, this angel who, who appears to be Michael, the archangel, and here's the reason why, is, is, is we go back to the, the prophecies that we see in the book of Daniel. I already read some earlier. But, but in the book of Daniel, um, in relationship to these seven years of tribulation, we're clearly told that Michael will play a, a key role in the great tribulation during this time as it reflects to Israel. And the timing of what takes place here is not by coincidence because as God sends the angel to declare, you know, this is my possession and all those who hate me are going to be, be kicked out. Remember, at the same time, the Antichrist is revealing himself to be something other than what he had first came on the scene to do and he's going to, he's going to turn against Israel. And he's going to pour out all kinds of wrath, the Antichrist is, upon God's people. But yet at this time, we see that Michael intervenes. God sent Michael to intervene. And this is even spoken of in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. It goes, goes along perfectly in regards to the time frame of the events that we're reading about. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, it says this. It says, at that time, Michael shall stand up. And we see that. He's coming to the earth and he's standing He's putting one foot on the earth and one foot on the sea, and he's standing, he's making a declaration by doing so, and it says, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. And the important thing to notice from this prophecy is that it is that it specifically says that Michael will stand up to intervene on behalf of the Hebrew people during a time of great trouble. That should be an assurance that God's still caring for his people even in the midst of this time. He's still providing for them. He's still going to protect them and meet their needs. And it also what it does is it predicts it predicts that at this time, God's people shall be delivered. In other words, Michael will be instrumental in the help of, of, of the Jewish people during this time of great tribulation. And many speculate that um, God will act, they'll flee, and God will, will hide them. And um, anybody heard of the, the rock city of Petra? Uh, many people, Bible scholars, believe that that's the place where God will um, protect and hide his people, the Jewish people, during this time. We'll see. Um, hopefully we'll see from heaven. But we'll see how that happens. In fact, we're told that he's even going to do battle for the Hebrew people in the spiritual realm, and he will be a key element in their help and in, in, in preservation. 
And when we get to, to chapter 12, you can, you can read ahead. We find out that Michael will be one of the ones who will ultimately um, do battle with Satan, and Satan will be forever cast out from, from heaven. Now, like I already said, when it comes to this angel that John saw, it's more important for us to understand what he has been sent to do. And here in verse 2, we read that when he comes down from heaven, he will set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And because one, verse 1 describes his feet to be like pillars of fire, we automatically know that, that this is symbolic. It's symbolic of the wrath and the judgment that is to come, more specifically the fiery judgment. We know that when God comes to judge the earth the second time, it will be with fire, right? And this is a picture of that. But more importantly, we need to understand that by placing his feet on the sea and the other on the land, that God is physically displaying his ownership over all the earth to those who dwell on it and in it at that time. And this is important because as we read on, we see that God's going to actually, he's going he's to take action and he's going to purge the earth. He's going to evict those who are against him and take back what is rightfully his. But it's also important to pay attention to the placement of the angel's feet, one being placed upon the sea and the other upon the land, because in chapter 13, when we get to chapter 13, we're going to see that the beast is going to rise up out of the sea. There's all these connections. He'll rise up out of the sea, and another will rise up out of the earth, two beasts, and they're going to display their power. Bible says, and it says that they will do so with signs and wonders as well, deceiving many people. But it'll only be for a time. And what we know as we see God already claiming the land and the sea that these, that these beasts will ultimately rise up from is, is that, that we're seeing that God's revealing to us that these beasts that will come up are ultimately only his tools. They're his instruments and they have no claim to this earth which is his, even though they're going to make a claim to it. And I want to point out that this claim of ownership that God is openly going to display, I think it should remind us, remind those of us who, who, who today rejoice in that redemption that we've already talked about through Jesus, that it should cause us to remember the redemption that we've already received through the blood of Jesus. And in doing so, it should remind us that we are his possessions, are we not? We're his possessions. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 19, we're told this. It says, Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, he says, Live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed from the way of, of an empty life handed down to you from your forefathers, but you were redeemed, literally purchased, it means, with the precious blood of Jesus, a lamb without blemish or defect. And the Apostle Paul writes similar to this in 1 Corinthians, and he says in chapter 6, verses 19 through 20, he says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God, and you are not your own. Paul's saying, do you not know this? That you've been purchased? That the Holy Spirit lives inside you, whom you have from God, and because of this, you're not your own. For you were bought with a price, he says. He says, therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You see, I think, I think today in Christianity, the message of Salvation by grace through faith is proclaimed, but many people 
look to Jesus as their Savior, and they leave out the Lord aspect of it. And God calls us, as we enter into this relationship of, of one who has been saved by a Savior, we need to understand that there's this submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ that must take place in our lives as well. Is he your Lord and your Savior? You see, the fact of the matter is, is something we need to be reminded, this is something we need to be reminded of because we can all lose sight of the fact that we've been purchased, that, that we are not our own. And, and, and in doing so, we can live as if Jesus, who is our Savior, is not our Lord. We can live like that. Consequently, we act, I'll say it like this, we act at times like spoiled kids. What do, you, what do I mean? Well, when we don't get the things we want. When things don't go the way we want. I, I have personally say, I can confess, I have found myself in this very spot through this time of, of um, whatever you want to call it, stay at home, safer at home, you know, what's going on in the world? I'm like, God, I don't like it. Do you even know what you're doing? You know? I, I, I'm going to be going on a trip back to Washington in a week or so, and I'm going to have to wear a mask on a plane. I'm not going to like that. But, you know, it's like I can, I, can, I can get grumpy and I can have an attitude with those around me. And really what I'm not doing is I'm not exercising contentment with godly, which brings forth a godly gain. And when we're content, it's because we're submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. He's still on the throne. COVID is not greater. The governor is not greater. These things that are going on that seems to be maybe in many ways where people have forsaken common sense, God's still ruling and reigning. And is he my Lord? He is my Lord. Then I should not be complaining about things when I don't get what I want. Or if we don't get to do what we want to do. You see, we have no right to act like this considering why? Because we've been bought and we've been paid for, purchased with the blood of Jesus. The life that he's bought for me to live is his life and I should live it for him. Therefore, God, who we profess to have given us our lives, if we really believe that, then does he not have the right to do with us, for us, and, 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 and to us as he sees fit? Does he not have the right to do with us, for us, and to us as he sees fit. And knowing that he gave his sinless life to redeem us, think about this. If we know that he gave his sinless life to redeem us and really ultimately paid such a great price to purchase us, we should also realize just how valuable we are to him. That we're a treasure to him. And, and not only that, valuable to, to, to God, but ultimately valuable to God who loves us. And because of that remembrance, we can go, I can trust him. I can trust him. He gave his life for me. He loves me. I can trust him. I can trust him to do with me, for me, and to me as he sees fit. And trust that in that, he always has our best in his mind. He always has our best in his mind. Now in verse 3, as we continue on, the last part's going to go quicker. It says, and he cried out with a loud voice is when a lion roars, and when he, he cried out, seven thunders uttered, seven th uttered their voices, and then the seven thunders uttered their voices. I was about to write, but I, 
but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. Now, I want to point out that the voice of this angel that will cry out is compared in verse 3 to that of a roar of a lion. And not only should be seen, this is really like a battle cry. Imagine that, like a battle cry, and it sounds the charge for an attack, but it's also a display. It's, it's, the, it's, a, it's, a, it's a vocal display of the power and strength of God. Listen, that'll bring fear into the hearts of God's enemies, but also brings comfort into the hearts of the people who are for him at this time. Imagine being on the battlefield and you hear this loud cry to battle. And depending on what other side you're on, that's going to bring forth one or two things inside of you. If you're on the, uh, on the opposite side and you hear that roaring cry of God's voice, it's going to cause you to, to shudder. It should. But if you're on the earth at this time and you're for Christ, even though you've been persecuted and suffering, you're going to hear this and you're going to see this and you're going to be like, yes, my God is powerful. And it's going to bring comfort and peace into your heart and into your mind. And even though Satan is described, remember this in 1 Peter, he's described as walking about the earth like a roaring lion. The fact of the matter is that Satan is nothing more than a cheap imitation. Now and then. And, and we know that Jesus, the Son of God, who is of the tribe of Judah, we're told that when he returns for the second time, it's not going to be as the Lamb of God, the little baby in the manger, right, who came to seek and save the lost, but he returns as this roaring and powerful Lion of God who will bind up these imposters and rule and reign upon the earth as a righteous king. Listen to what it says in Joel chapter 3. Verses 14 through 16 about this. It says, Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decisions. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon will grow dark and the stars will diminish their brightness. Things that we've been reading about here so far up to this point. And it says, At that time the Lord will also roar from Zion and utter His voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for His people and the strength of the children of Israel. And when the angel cried out, we're told that he was answered by these seven thunderings, which is a reference to the, to the powerful and mighty voice of God. And we can discern this in light of two things. The first has to do with the fact that the term seven thunders, this is really an ancient Jewish expression for the voice of God. And I've told you over and over again that the book of Revelation, even the New Testament, is a very Jewish book. More than 400 Old Testament references throughout the book. Furthermore, when we look back to chapter 4, if you want to look there real quick, verse 5, we specifically that these voices, that they're, the, the voice of God is the one that's, these voices, of, this voice of God is the one that's proclaiming the judgments are, are the one that's sent out from the throne. And the unusual thing about this is that when John sees these things, now this is unusual to the whole book of Revelation, is that he was preparing to write them down because that's what he had been told to do. John, these things that you see, these things that you hear, write them down. The things that are and will be and are to come, write them down. But then there's this other voice that we hear about in verse 4 that tells him something contrary. He says, don't do this this time. Seal these things up which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them down. So the, the outcrying of God's voice, the things that God speaks at this time, they're, they're sealed. They're a mystery. We're not told what they are. And clearly what is spoken by God at this time is supposed to be kept secret until the day that they come to pass. Now, I don't know for sure why these judgments are being kept secret. We're not told anywhere the reason for why, but 
uh, if you want to speculate, you know, maybe speculate like this. This is just an opinion. I think maybe that, that they're so terrible and so disturbing about what's to happen that God in his mercy has hid them from us. And in this instance, the not knowing is the blessing. The not knowing is the blessing. In light of this, I want to point out that in spite of what many people think, because there's many people out there in Christianity today who look at the book of Revelation and everything in it, and, 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 and they, they believe that it's not meant to be understood. That's, they look at the symbolism and the, the figurative language in there, and they go, that's because we're not supposed to know. And, and I don't believe that. The only thing in it that I see that is a mystery, which is left unknown, is these judgments that are spoken by God, and they're hidden until they come. And you see, God never intended this, for this book to be a mystery. And ver- back in chapter 1, verse 3, we're clearly told that there is a blessing for us when we read it and hear what it has to say. Because even though there is going to be some scary things going on, ultimately God is letting us know that in the end it's going to be okay. That's what God's telling us. That's the overall message, if you will, as defined by Sean, <laughs> that, that God's saying, listen, all this stuff's going to happen, but don't worry, it's going to be okay. We win in the end. That's kind of the deal. We're on the winning team. Nevertheless, this secret thing that John was, was told to conceal, it points us to this really cool fact. It, 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 the fact that, that when we consider God and consider God's ways, there's always going to be mysteries. There's always going to be some things that are unrevealed to us, some things that we just can't figure out. And, and, and early on in my Christian walk, that used to bug me. And I would think, well, how could I ever put my faith into something that I don't know. And then I come to realize that faith is, is not walking by sight, right? It, it comes by hearing God's word. That's how faith comes. And it's substance to evident things, substance and, and evidence of things that we've hoped for. But in all of that, I, 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 there's going to be mysteries in regards to God and in, in, in regards to the things that, that he does. And I think this is in due to the part that, that, that we're finite creatures, we have limitations. And God is infinite. He has no limitations. And because of this, because of this simple fact, it's impossible for us in our finite understanding, think about it, to understand, to fully understand an infinite God in his, in his ways. Matter of fact, God will write at one point and he says, my ways are high above your ways. High above your ways. But I want to remind you of this, that we can trust God even when he does not see fit to reveal all that we would like to know. And man, that's also been a challenge for me right now in what we're going through. God, how am I supposed to know what's going on? Some people say this and some people say that. And sometimes God doesn't give us the answers. He just lets us walk through it. But it's who we're walking with through it that makes the difference. God doesn't always see fit to reveal all that we would like to know. And in those times, we don't have all the answers. We, by faith, must simply lean on God, even though our finite minds might not grasp all of his purposes in all of his ways. And I know this can be a struggle because in these times, our reaction to, is to question God. <clears throat> I'd like to say maybe ask God, but the questioning is probably more of the right attitude that we take. We're not like, oh God, could you please tell me what's going on? It's like, God, what's going on? And, and we do. In those times, we're like, why? 
Why, why, why? But the fact of the matter is, is God does not always tell us why. We see that here. And the point is, is God will be God. God will be God. And our job is to trust him and to not allow for our devotion or our peace to be a condition. Let me, hear the, let me say this again. God will be God, and our job is to trust him and to not allow for our devotion, meaning our obedience, our devotion, our obedience, or our peace to be a condition of whether we do or do not understand everything he does or everything he allows. Here's why. I've heard this said, that God's secrets are his glory and his secrets are our opportunity to exercise faith. God's secrets are his glory and his secrets are our opportunity to exercise our faith. The worship team wants to come up. We're going to end with these last verses. It says, The voice which I heard from heaven, verse 8, spoke to me and said, Go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. And so I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and I ate it. And it was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. And really what we're being told is that John was given more information. He's going to be given more information, more knowledge about from God's word that's that, and shown things that's to be coming, and it's not going to be pleasant. John's already seen some pretty hardcore things. And see, the direction that the angel gave to John to eat the book, ultimately, guys, as we close, it needs to remind us of our own responsibility to take in and to digest the word of God and make it a part of us. A part of us. To allow it to change us. You see, it was not enough for John to just see the book or even to know its contents and purpose. He had to receive it into his inner being. And such is the case with the written word of God. Why? Because we were told in Scripture that it's alive. It's profitable. It's necessary for our lives today. And all throughout Scripture, these truths are declared as the Word of God is symbolically compared to, to food, right? Bread, we're told in Matthew chapter 4, 4. Milk in chapter, or 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, the Word of God is compared to meat. And then in the Psalms, specifically Psalm 119, 103, the word of God is, is compared to honey, symbolized by honey. Listen to this, the prophets Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16, and the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 9, and then again in chapter 3, verse, verse 4, they knew from those verses we can see what it was meant what it, what it meant to eat God's word. They knew what it was to eat the word of God and that they had to do so before they could share it with others. In other words, the things that God gave to them, the things that God revealed to them, the things that God spoke to them, it, it was to come into them first and they were to receive it and then to let it come out. I had the opportunity to meet with somebody a few months ago about their own personal devotion time 
and they've been a Christian for a long time, and they get up in the morning, and they do their daily devotion, and you know, they would read a chapter, and they go about their day. They take in God's Word, and they were feeling a little dry and, and, and distance from God, and this, this had turned into this routine. And, and I encouraged them. I said, okay, so here's the deal. I said, when you wake up in the morning and you begin to read, if, if you feel like God's spoken to you something in that time of reading, stop. I don't care if it's one verse or a hundred verses, one chapter or a hundred chapters. You read until God speaks something to you. And if it's that one thing, then take it in and meditate on it. Receive it. Chew it up. And then take that one thing and, and make your day about giving that one thing to someone else, at least one some other person. You see, there's, there's a part, there's, there's something that happens when we take in God's word and receive it for ourselves, but also then share it with others. And that's what John was being instructed to do. Take this in, receive it for yourself, and then share it with others. There's an, there's an experiential knowing of God that takes place through that that we otherwise don't come to have unless that's taking place. You see, one of the things I want to point out as we close, as we look at this, is, guys, God's not going to force feed us his word. John had to go to this mighty angel, right? Go and take it and eat it. He could have just said, John, open your mouth. And these things might seem little, but they're significant and they're important. God's not going to thrust his word into our mouths and force us to receive it. He hands it to us, and we have to take it in. And, and, and the same thing is, 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 is God cannot change the effect that the word will have in our lives. And what I mean by that is, is when we take God's word in, sometimes it's going to convict us, and it's going to bring forth sorrow that leads to hopefully to repentance, a godly sorrow. But other times, you're going to take in, in God's word, and it's going to bring forth joy. Sometimes God's word can be bitter, and sometimes God's word can be sweet. But we must allow for it to do the work that God has set forth to do, reaching out to take it. God's word contains sweet promises, insurances, but also contains bitter warnings and prophecies of judgment, just like what we're reading of here. You see, part of that is reflective in the way we live because as Christians, as we talked about, those who are, whose lives are not our own, right? Those who are to glorify God by the way that we live our lives and the words that we speak so people see Jesus in us and through us, we need to understand that as that witness, we're going to bear witness to not only life but also death. Bible says that we will be the aroma of life to some and the aroma of death to others. We're not responsible for that. God is. Our, God is, our responsibility is to take it in and let it go out. To not dilute the message of God, simply to please people who have itching ears. So be faithful in the morning to rise, to take in God's word, to allow it to do the work in you that God has set forth to do so that it may do the work through you into the lives of other people around you. Let's pray. Will you guys stand? Lord, thank you for these encouragements.